This week, predicting the election. Spoiler alert: We can't. The future is just inherently unpredictable. It would give us comfort if we had a way of perfectly predicting it, but we certainly don't have that. And making mice from egg cells grown from scratch in a dish. Until I saw the babies,、uh, I didn't imagine that these are really functional. Plus, the super bright flares hidden in an astronomy archive. This is the Nature Podcast for October the twentieth, twenty sixteen. I'm Adam Levy, and I'm Carrie Smith. On the eighth of May, twenty fifteen, a British politician ate his hat on national television. This was the day after the UK's general election, an election that the polls had been saying hung in the balance, with no party popular enough to form a government. But then the exit polls started to come in. The surveys that ask voters as they leave the polling station how they've just voted, and the exit polls predicted an easy majority for one party, the Conservatives. Lots of people were shocked by this new prediction. None more than that politician Paddy Ashdown, who declared on live TV, "If this exit poll is right, I will publicly eat my hat." Well, the rest is history. The Conservatives did win easily, and at least Paddy was able to find a hat made of chocolate. But why is it so hard to predict an election, and how well are experts doing at predicting the U.S. race less than a month away? Courtney Kennedy is the director of survey research at the Pew Research Center in D.C. I gave her a bell to find out why polls sometimes struggle and what the ingredients are to a good poll. For starters, you'd like to have a nationally representative sample in which each person. In the population that you're interested in, has a chance of being selected. That's the ideal.、And、then, after sampling, it's very important that the questions are crafted in a way that、um, doesn't lead people to respond one way or the other. And finally, at the last stage, it's very important to have the survey data be statistically adjusted because all surveys these days are subject to fairly high levels of of non-response from people not wanting to cooperate. And so, we have to try to adjust for that. How big a problem is this? How many people don't respond? In the U.S., frankly, roughly nine out of ten people that we try to get to take one of our polls declines to do so. One amazing result is that even with you know only a ten percent response rate, polls do surprisingly well. And we kind of joke about it, but I think it's true. The reason that polling still works in the U.S. is because Republicans and Democrats hate pollsters about equally. That's lucky. So dislike of you guys is a nonpartisan issue. One of the few nonpartisan <laughs> issues in America. That's right. Both sides can agree that they hate pollsters. <laughs>、yes. But. How is this changing? Polls used to be all about just phoning people up. There's、uh, a big drive to using the internet, and naturally so, because a lot of people are obviously using the internet. The cost of collecting data on the internet is is much cheaper than using traditional methodologies.、Um, but we do have this this central challenge, which is that there is no comprehensive way to sample from the internet. That's because if you want to pick a phone number at random, you effectively just have to flick through a phone book, and there's no phone book equivalent for email addresses. But contacting people to poll their voting intention isn't the only way of predicting an election. There's another way, and it's all about putting your money where your mouth is. This approach involves something called prediction markets. 
Adam Mann, a freelance reporter in Oakland, California, has written a feature all about these markets. I called him up to find out more. Prediction markets are essentially these little mini Wall Streets um, where people buy and sell shares in something that's going to happen in the future. Usually the results of an election, um, like the U.S. presidential election that we're having right now, as people buy and sell the shares, the prices sort of move up and down. Um, and the eventual price is said, to re- is said to be a representation of the odds of that person winning. Some of the researchers at the University of Iowa have looked at their results and said that since 1988, they were able to predict the results of the elections better than the polls 74% of the time. Well, I, my next question is maybe the obvious question. Why? What is it about this setup where people are kind of buying and selling predictions leads to better predictions? It seems that when you get together a group of people, we collectively are sometimes able to figure stuff out better than any individual. It's called the the wisdom of the crowds. The the example that we give is sort of the jelly bean guessing game at a at a county fair where you line up a bunch of people and they march past this jar full of jelly beans. And any individual guess is not particularly accurate, but the average guess, they will be almost exactly the number of jelly beans in the jar. But there have been some pretty notable cases where this kind of predi- these kind of prediction markets haven't worked so well. And maybe one of the most notable, most recent ones is for the Brexit vote. For Brexit the prediction markets said that the chances of stay were 85%. And as we all know, the majority of, of British citizens voted to leave, actually, on the on the day of election. You know, there are lots of different factors here. The people who were maybe betting in the prediction markets, um, as one economist told me, had a financial incentive to want stay to happen um, because they were mostly investors. So maybe they were sort of blindsided. So this kind of conflict meant that prediction markets didn't handle Brexit so well. But there is another test coming up for them very soon, um, which is, of course, the presidential election over in the States where you live. What are prediction markets saying about that? The prediction markets have been fairly consistent that Hillary Clinton is going to win Uh, the U.S. presidential election from a very early point. Basically, as soon as she clinched the Democratic nomination, I believe, they they have never really wavered. But that's just what the prediction markets are saying. How are the polls looking? Here's Courtney Kennedy again. In recent days, um, especially since some of the newer revelations about Donald Trump have come out, the lead for Hillary Clinton in the polls has started to to widen a bit from roughly four or five point lead to more uh, around an eight point lead now. So that's both the prediction markets and the polling pointing towards Hillary Clinton winning. But now before you think the election is settled and you rush out and bet all your life savings on its outcome, Adam Mann has a word of warning. The, the future is just inherently unpredictable in a lot of cases. It would give us comfort if we had a way of perfectly predicting it, but we certainly don't have that. That was Adam Mann, whose feature about prediction markets is available at nature.com forward slash news. You also heard from Courtney Kennedy. There's more from her in a feature all about polling at the same address. Coming up in the research highlights, a paralysed man feels using a robotic arm and a tiny transistor. Sometimes the best results are those that come as a surprise, 
And that's definitely the case in this next story from the Archives of Astronomy. Take it away, Kerry. Thanks, Adam. First, meet Jimmy Irwin. I'm Jimmy Irwin, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. His area of speciality is studying objects that produce X-rays, objects like neutron stars or black holes. So these, the black hole has a, a swirling disk of material around it, what we call an accretion disk. As it spirals inward, uh, friction heats up the gas to these high X-ray emitting temperatures. We see the X-rays coming from the gas just before it goes into the black hole. Astronomers know of about 150 examples just within the Milky Way of neutron stars or black holes that steal material from companion stars and then flare out X-rays. Jimmy knew that there was a lot of untouched data on X-rays sitting in the archives of the Chandra Space Telescope. So the data was taken a decade ago, but it sat in the archive for a decade undiscovered. In the fall of 2013, Jimmy had some undergraduate students in need of a project. And he thought he'd come up with something nice and manageable for them, enough to keep them occupied for a couple of semesters. A couple of years ago, I started three undergraduates at the University of Alabama on a project to try to find X-ray binaries that have strong time durability. And I wrote a script for them to identify these sources, to run the statistical analysis to see what kind of bursts we could find. And quite unexpectedly, we found these. When Jimmy says these, he's referring to two surprising flares of X-rays his team found in the data, both outside our galaxy. They're surprising because they're much brighter than expected, a hundred million times brighter than our sun. Usually objects this bright are about to die a spectacular death. There's actually very few types of objects in our universe that we know that do this without blowing themselves up, like a supernova or a gamma ray burst. These types of objects that are in the paper, we discussed in the paper will flare up very brightly for a couple minutes. Their emission will tail off after about an hour, and then they're back to being a garden variety X-ray binary, like the kind we see in very large numbers in galaxies. The team found two sources like this that can regenerate and flare again. They also flare up very quickly. Uh, they're changing their energy output by factors of more than 100 on timescales of less than a minute. So what started as an undergrad project turned into an astronomical mystery. What's up in these distant galaxies? What are these objects? I asked Jimmy more about these mysterious flares and what he thinks might be making them. Something which we don't fully understand is happening in these accretion systems that are causing them to increase their energy budgets by a factor of 100 or 200 very, very quickly and then fade back to what they were doing before. We just don't know yet what these objects are. They're probably, they're probably a neutron star or a black hole, but they're probably accreting in a manner that we're not familiar with, with the examples that we have in our own galaxy. Well, it almost seems like they're going against some fundamental law, doesn't it? I mean, they're just giving out all this energy, but they're not collapsing, they're not on their way to transforming into another state. They seem quite happy to just do this and then go back to normal. Yes, um, you know, most of the X-ray binaries we see are happy to stay at the same luminosity for, for long periods of time. Um, there is a maximum limit that a neutron star can reach in terms of its energy output in the unit of time. Um, there are ways for that to be violated, but these are violating that limit by about a factor of 100. So if it is a neutron star, it's doing something we don't fully understand. If it's a black hole, these higher luminosities are uh, more allowable, but we still don't understand the mechanism for why they can get so luminous in such a short period of time. And so do you think they are just really extreme examples of these black hole binary 
pairs or, or even neutron star pairs, or is there something totally different going on? Are they a totally new type of object? We're not sure yet. Probably the most, the more conservative answer would be it's a neutron star or it's a low-mass black hole that is doing something we haven't seen before. The more speculative possibility is it could be what we call an intermediate-mass black hole. Intermediate mass meaning more massive than the types that's formed from uh, the collapse of a normal star, maybe 100 to maybe 10,000 times the mass of our sun. We don't really know how to make black holes in that mass range. Do you mean just theoretically it's hard to get them to exist in models? That's right. Uh, If you want to take an individual star and make it collapse, you tend to top out around 20 times the mass of our sun. So it's hard to make anything bigger than 20 unless you're at the center of a galaxy then probably you, know, you can make things that are a million or a billion times massive, more massive than our sun. Making something in between, though, there just aren't that many conceivable mechanisms that would allow uh, a black hole in that mass range to form. This might be an example of that if we want to go with the more speculative uh, answer. Which of your explanations would you prefer was true? <laughs> I would like it to be an intermediate mass black hole simply because we don't have any firm evidence that such an object exists. So if we could show that it exists in this object, that would solve about a 40-year-old puzzle as to whether intermediate mass black holes exist or not. Uh, But we're not ready to make that claim yet. How should we go about now finding out more about what these things are? Well, as usual, we want more observations of these objects. Um, One problem is we don't know when they're going to burst. One of the sources only burst one time in all the observations that that X-ray telescopes were looking at it. So we really don't know how often that one bursts. Uh, the second one is burst six times for an average of about once every one and a half days. Now, you could say, well, just point a telescope for a day and a half and, and, and or for three days and try to catch it in multiple cycles. That's hard to convince telescope committees to, to accept. It's an awful long length of time to look at one object. So we're, it's challenging to come up with a way to predict when it's going to happen so that we can train telescopes, other telescopes, not just X-ray telescopes, on it at the same time to determine what's going on. That was astronomer Jimmy Irwin at the University of Alabama. Read the paper and a News and Views whose author is also scratching his head over what these things are. They're both at nature.com slash nature. Still to come, making egg cells from scratch. And in the news, the scientists voting for Trump. Before that, it's the research highlights read this week by Jeff Marsh. A paralysed man has used a robotic arm to feel for the first time in 12 years. Nathan Copeland was paralysed when his spinal cord was damaged in a car accident. Using an implant, scientists connected the parts of his brain that perceive touch to sensors on the fingers of a robotic hand. When the fingers are touched, Nathan feels a pressure-like sensation. Restoring other sensations, like heat or pain, will be more challenging, but the device has shown it can work over a long time. Nathan has had the implant for nearly a year and a half. Read the report in Science Translational Medicine. Researchers have made the world's tiniest transistor, with a gate just one nanometer long. The electronics industry, of course, relies on silicon, but the smallest silicon transistor is a gaping five nanometers. The new one is made of a two-dimensional material called molybdenum disulfide, with a carbon nanotube laid across it, acting as the gate. The nanotube switches the current off when a voltage is applied to it. While still a proof of principle at this stage, these new transistors could increase our capacity to shrink our electronics. Find more details in the journal Science.
Our most loyal listeners may remember our next podcast guest, Katsuhiko Hayashi. He was on the podcast a few years ago because his team had taken skin cells from mice and managed to turn them into fully functional egg cells. Fertility treatments rely on a supply of healthy eggs, so this was a promising development. But the experiment had its limits. To mature the eggs, they needed to be placed back in the mouse's ovaries. In humans, that would be pretty invasive. And anyway, there are bigger ethical issues with making and using artificial egg cells in humans. Researchers aren't ready for that yet. But they have been advancing their work in mice. Hayashi and his team have been able to coax mouse cells into undergoing the whole cycle, from stem cell to mature egg cell, all in a dish. Not only that, they then showed that the eggs could be fertilized and made into mice. And then they took stem cells from the mice and did the whole thing all over again. Reporter Jeff Marsh gave Hayashi a call. Why have biologists always seen the reconstitution of egg development in culture as a sort of holy grail? I think there is a two purpose to do such an experiment. We want to know how the egg cells is produced in the body. If we reconstitute egg production process in culture, these cultural systems make it possible to look at more detail of the process. Then the second point is, of course, we can use artificial eggs to produce the animals. You made headlines a few years ago by reconstituting basically the first part of this process in a dish. We made a precursor of the egg. So then、uh, we transplant the precursor primordial germ cells into the mice. So actually, the process from the precursor of the egg. To the egg is actually happen inside the body, so that is a kind of previous study. In this time, we did it、uh, without transplantation. In order to do this in a dish, you presumably have to move these cells around different cultures and add different ingredients. How did you choreograph these different stages in culture? Basically, I just add the very small number of the key molecules. That is important for each differentiation step. So, for example, for the oocyte growth, actually the key factor I add is only three things. So,、um, actually, the、uh, the number of factor is not so many. How do you know that what you ended up with were these fully potent mature mouse egg cells? Until I saw the babies,、uh, I didn't imagine that these are really functional. The pups we got from the mature egg in the dish are healthy. Then、uh, they become the adult mice, and also they also have、uh, their own babies. So we made the mature egg from the stem cells. Then they get fertilized. Then they actually become developing the embryos. Then we could establish the stem cells again from the developing embryos. We induced again the primordial germ cells from the second generation of the stem cells. Then we made again the egg from the stem cells. So it was the it was the full circle of life of an egg, at least in a dish. Yeah, yeah. In theory, we can make a number of cycles in the dish. Now, living mice weren't entirely removed from the equation, were they? Because there were times when actually you needed to use non-sex cells from living mice, somatic cells, that is, in your culture to help the eggs mature. So, in that system, we still need the gonadal somatic cells from the fetal ovary 
for supporting egg production. So although we succeeded, we still need the somatic cells from the embryo. Does that pose a problem if we were to try and move these achievements into humans? Yeah, absolutely. Because mouse is the only species we can get very easily the gonadal somatic cells. So that is not the case in the human. But theoretically, you got egg cells starting from stem cells in this experiment. Why couldn't you get those supporting somatic cells from stem cells in humans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the our, our next subject. Actually, we are now trying to make the gonadal somatic cells from the stem cells. So if we could establish such a culture system, that would be very useful for the, the human uh, human system. Now, I know scientists don't always like doing this, but theoretically, what can you see 10 years, 50 years down the line? Will people be able to produce their own egg cells from skin cells and, and generate mature eggs of their own in a dish? There is a possibility that we can get such an egg in the human from stem cells. But of course, whether you use this egg, of course, depends on the society, of course. And what do you think is the implications of your paper for infertility and for the public? Oof. Okay, so um, I think at least the paper gave some clue, but still we have many, many processes to be done. So I hope that the, uh, the researchers working on the human established some sort of similar system by looking at our paper. That was Katsuhiku Hayashi from Kyushu University in Japan. Find his paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally, it's the news and on the line from Washington, D.C. is senior news reporter Sarah Reardon. Now, we started this episode with the election and we're going to finish it with the election as well. And you've been calling up scientists in labs uh, all over the US, scientists who have one thing in common. They're voting for Republican nominee Donald Trump. And surveys show, in fact, that being an academic and being a conservative actually puts you in a minority, right? Yes, that's that's very much true. Um, And we actually weren't sure we were going to be able to do this story because we were having so much trouble finding anyone who wanted to talk to us about Trump because even people who normally would identify as Republicans, Trump is pretty unpopular even in the Republican Party this year. It's an extremely um, polarizing election. Um, And so what we did was we um, put out a call on social media just saying, hey, anybody want to talk to us about, are you a scientist who's planning to to vote for Trump? Do you want to talk to us? And all of the responses we were getting on Facebook and Twitter were people making fun of us. Like, you're not going to find any of those. They don't exist. Science and Trump don't exist in the same universe. Um, we had a few people contacting us saying that they thought that we were going to put them on some sort of watch list or blacklist so they could never publish in Nature if they were going to be voting for Trump even. Um, but eventually we did have, have a, a few people get in touch, and they were a lot of them were still, even then, nervous, didn't want their names used because they think that they are such a minority that... Um, they're going to be judged by their colleagues and it could hurt their career prospects. And why did you think that even given all of these barriers that it would be an interesting story to to write? Um, Because I I think we tend, uh, a lot of times people tend to think of scientists as this monolithic group of people who want more funding for science, which is something that Democrats usually give in the U.S., which isn't actually always true. But the country um, right now in the United States, it, it's just really, really interesting election season because people are 
hate Hillary Clinton so much, and some people hate Donald Trump so much, and they will not vote for the other one, no matter what their candidate does. And so we figured there's got to be some scientists who hate Hillary Clinton. They, they're humans, they're Americans, they've got lots of other interests other than this kind of conception that Democrats are good for science, Republicans are bad for science. And you got thoughtful replies from those people you could get in touch with. Two of the sources in the story wanted to remain anonymous, which just speaks to your point earlier of how polarising, I suppose, it is. What kind of reasons did they give then for being in the Trump camp? Well, I'll, I'll start with the ones that you mentioned um, who wanted to to be anonymous. Um, both of these folks were um, are academic uh, faculty and postdocs who just don't want their name to come up in the same story as Trump. But they really dislike Hillary Clinton. They think she's dishonest. They think she's got a lot of ties to big business. And these are criticisms that we hear a lot um, in this election cycle. Uh, and they, they had some specific reasons why they didn't um, like Hillary or why they were somewhat hopeful about Trump. Because um, Hillary's a Democrat. People think of her as going to be continuing a lot of Obama's policies, which she may or may not do uh, to different extents. But people have been unhappy over the last eight years about the state of fu- science funding, about the state of regulation, about immigration, about all sorts of different issues, many of which have nothing to do with science, um, social issues, foreign policy. People who have disagreed with Obama think that, tend to think Hillary might do similar things. Um, Trump, we don't really know what he's going to do with regards to foreign policy and with regards to um, science in particular. He hasn't really said much about that. So he's kind of a black box. And people are thinking that the devil you don't know is maybe better than the devil you do. If you know Hillary's going to be bad, then maybe Trump will bring about some sort of change. Uh, and I suppose that's the rub, isn't it? Really, this election, it's not really about science, is it? No, no, I think that... I mean, I've had a few people tell me that if one of the candidates was extremely pro-science, was like, oh, I'm going to double the NIH budget, I'm going to be doing all of these great things for science, and these were actual promises that could be kept, then if they were on the fence, that might be like a tipping point. But, I mean, scientists are primarily, probably Americans, before they're scientists, they've got questions about where the economy's going, about employment, education for their kids. Um, and there's a lot more issues out there that people are thinking about in addition to science. That said, I did speak with a few folks who uh, tend to be kind of outspoken about issues like climate change and environmental regulations. And some of what they see as uh, weaknesses in climate science and in the science that's being used in forming uh, environmental policies in the U.S. Um, And so they do tend to think that Obama's clean energy regulations, for instance, are expensive and they're not supported by good science. Um, And so they are also hoping that Trump, who says that he doesn't really believe in climate change as a thing, he's not overly concerned about the environment um, as compared to some other interests, that he would do more for businesses that could be hurt by climate and environment regulations. Sarah Reardon, thank you. This won't be the last time we write about the election as things start to heat up in the US. Keep up to date at nature.com slash news and follow at Nature News on Twitter. Also this week on the Nature News Facebook page and our YouTube channel, you can watch capuchin monkeys banging stones together and producing stone flakes. And intriguingly, the sharp-edged flakes look remarkably similar to stone tools made by human relatives in Africa two million years ago. Could monkeys have been muddying the fossil record? Check out youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for more. That's all from us. Come find us on Twitter if you have comments or questions about anything you've heard in the show or just to say hi. 
Thanks to Damien in Heidelberg and Giridar in Bangalore for writing in this week to tell us they listen regularly. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 